Welcome, everyone. What a pleasure it is to be here this morning. And I'd like to start this morning by acknowledging Manafenoa of this place where we are. We're looking at change this morning, changing the way we live in our world. We'll talk about why that change is needful, urgent even, especially at this moment in our history on the planet. We'll talk about the challenges that come with that need for change and the opportunities that come along with change. And we'll talk about what change means in the context of where we are here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, here in this community in Dunedin. And we'll broaden it out because we have to, because this is a situation, a need for change that is not just about us, it's about everyone on the planet. So we have two guests this morning to talk about this. One's uh, first for Aotearoa and one's a maker of worlds. When Aaron Hawkins beside me was presented with his robes and his beautiful chains that he's wearing this morning at a Dunedin City Council meeting, he became New Zealand's first Green Party mayor, the first to come in under the banner of the party. And critically, there is a constituency out here who may now know what it feels like to be represented by a local politician for the first time in their lives. I can see some heads nodding in the audience. Will you join me in welcoming your mayor, Aaron Hawkins? And beside him, another agent of change, world-renowned filmmaker, explorer, and of late, denizen of the Wairarapa, my neck of the woods, James Cameron. The museum is currently showing Challenging the Deep, the exhibition, the extraordinary exhibition you'll be able to see upstairs, built around the story of his explorations. Of late, all of his work has come to converge around his environmentalism, whether it's through filmmaking and engineering or through his farming and investments in the plant-based food industry. He is devoting his considerable resources and talents to changing how we get what we need from our world. It's great to welcome James Cameron. And thank you all for being here. We'll try to leave some time for questions as well um, at the end, but I have lots. Um, Aaron, I want to start with you because Dunedin City Council voted to declare a climate emergency back earlier this year in June, around the same time as Pope Francis, actually. Um, We're not often mentioned in the same <laughs> sentence, so thank you. <laughs> as of September this year, over a thousand jurisdictions in 19 countries have declared a climate emergency. What was the background to Dunedin's? Yeah, good question. Uh, and, and first of all, thank you for your, for your mehi and your warm welcome. And I think it's important to acknowledge who isn't here and who isn't part of this conversation. And, um, you know, uh, mana whenua and matauranga Māori, as with all Indigenous cultures, offer us a lot in terms of uh, environmental stewardship and, and solutions to the situations that we find ourselves in. But I can't speak on, on behalf of that. Um, I think the climate emergency movement... Uh, in New Zealand at least, has made the connection between uh, the urgency of the situation we find ourselves in and the critical role that local government has to play in getting us where we need to go. And we've seen that internationally. It's been uh, city governments and sub-national governments in the face of inertia at a nation-state level and at a mm -hmm. federal level that has really been pushing this, whether that's you know, Michael Bloomberg's Compact of Mayors group or you know, the state of California, um, just getting on with it because we can't wait for you know, a, a United Nations agreement to get us, get us out of this. And so uh, we had uh, a, very active, uh, a very active group around the country, and particularly in Dunedin, who were pushing for us uh, to make that declaration as an acknowledgement that we need to do more and we need to do it faster. Um, but I think the, the degree of political support we got for that, uh, you know, declaring a climate emergency, setting ourselves a target of being a zero carbon city by 2030, um, that, that, is solely, that can lay solely at the feet of the school strikes movement, I think. And, it, and I don't think, you know, it became impossible to ignore 
thousands of young people marching on the streets literally outside our office demanding that we do more. And it's embarrassing that it took that. Uh, and, and they've had to do that, give up their own you know, career trajectories and educations to you know, embarrass us into making more of an effort, but that was the first step along that path. Mm. It, you know, as you say, it, it was an emotional meeting reading the, the accounts of it, but this is an emotional issue, isn't it, James? Well, it's a deeply emotional issue if we care about our children or if we are children facing an anxious future. Uh, as, as, as I think we all know, unless we're in really active denial, we're facing probably the biggest existential challenge to human civilization, and we're, we are collectively responsible for it, and, and we are collectively responsible for the, for the solutions. So, you know, as a father of five, I, I take it as my sacred responsibility to be doing as much as I can and I can only hope that there are enough like-minded people out there that populate the major corporations that right now seem to be working largely to exert pressure on national governments to, to not change the status quo. Because we're not changing the way we do business, the way we consume, the way we eat, the way we consume energy, produce energy. We're not changing any of those things fast enough to really make a big difference in the long run. But What's really encouraging for me as a resident of New Zealand and someone who spends about half my year here between here and California, when I, I, when I was shooting in, uh, in Wellington um, recently, I read the Dominion Post every day for about, I would say, 90 days. And it was during that period of the, um, you know, the acceptance of the idea, the nomenclature of the climate crisis and all of the, you know, the city and regional groups that were, that were signing on and, and classifying it as a climate crisis. And it was in stark contrast to the media that I was getting from, from back in the U.S., where you know, the president has, is basically literally going about the process of extricating the U.S. from the Paris Accords. And everything in that country is going the wrong direction now because they've just handed the reins of power to the special interest groups. So, you know, the, the oil lobbies and the, you know, big food and big pharma lobbies and everybody have just really taken over. So, so you know, I, I, call, I call it the pantheon of demons right now. But you guys should, I know, that, I know that there's a lot of contention and it's a very difficult and fractious time and there's a lot of dialogue around this, but at least here we're having the dialogue and we're doing things. And what you're doing at a, at a city level is absolutely critical. A good friend of mine happens to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor of California, and he was, even though he was a Republican, he was only a Republican by California standards. Uh, <laughs> You know, he was very pro-business, and he believed that the future lay in, in, in green energy and in solar and, and uh, in, you know, uh, st state governments, regional governments, city governments uh, uh, taking an active role um, and, and basically, um, you know, breaking through the, the momentum and the logjam that's taking place at the national levels. There's a few things that have come out of, of what you've both said that I want to unpack, Aaron, especially what you said. A declaration is meaningless unless it's accompanied by some sort of action. I see that a group of scientists in America mm. have come out with their own declaration of emergency at the same time, as you say. Um, 11,000 scientists. 11,000 scientists at the same time as President Trump has withdrawn. Same week formally from, from the Paris Accord. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges in terms of getting to carbon zero in Dunedin about that plan? It's ambitious. <laughs> and I mean, in terms of, there are, there, are, there are different levels, right? So there's things that we have direct control over. So as a local authority, we are in charge of managing our transport network and transport is one of the biggest opportunities we have in terms of uh, reducing our carbon footprint. And that's about uh, making public transport more efficient and more accessible and walking and cycling safer and, and, and all of those uh, sorts of things. Uh, there's other stuff around uh, waste management uh, and, and the circular economy and 
uh, and how we manage uh, those sorts of things. Uh, there's stuff that you can do around eff the efficiency of buildings and supporting uh, insulation of buildings and, and, and uh, reducing the, the loss of energy that way. Uh, but we don't, have, we don't have a lot of direct influence uh, compared to municipal governments or state governments in other jurisdictions. So a lot of what is required for us to do is effectively advocate uh, on behalf of our community and the ambitions of our community uh, to, to central government and government agencies and get them uh, to match that and, and pull the levers that they can uh, to get us further along that path. So, you know, we, we can, so the commitment that we have made is that we will do everything that we can uh, and for the things that are outside of our direct control, we have to push harder to make sure that that happens as well because you need both of the, those things because the city alone uh, doesn't have the authority to get us to where we need to get to. You said it's, um, you started by saying it's ambitious. Jim, as a, as a director who's kind of a synonym for ambitious, how important is ambition in, in framing? Well, I think you have to set yourself a goal and have the will to do it. And the first step for that is for us as a, as a community and as a society to be in agreement that this is something that we believe has to happen. And then we'll, we'll find the will to make the changes that we have to make. And we're going to have to make them personally. I mean, I think that it's relatively invisible to the average person in terms of their utilization, whether the electricity that you get is created from solar or geothermal or whatever. Um, but when you have to actually make lifestyle changes in terms of how you drive, how you do transportation, what you eat, and so on, it becomes, it, it, it starts to get personal. And that's where you have to have the will and you have to have the motivation and there has to be a consensus. So I want to bring up an un, unpopular subject, which is that the elephant in the room in all of this in New Zealand is a cow or a sheep or, or a chicken, but mostly cows. And it, it goes like this. 50% of the greenhouse forcing created here is from the animal agriculture sector. The low-hanging fruit of change that exists for other countries with the electric grid and so on doesn't exist here because we're, we're already mostly on hydro. So a major change in, the, in, the, in electricity generation is not going to get us to you know, 50% reductions and 100% reductions and that sort of thing is not going to work. Transportation, again, is a significant part of it. It's actually above the global average. I think transportation here is about 18, 19% and global average is about 14.5%. But the global average for animal agriculture contributing to climate change is, is, uh, is about 14, 15%. Here it's 50%. And it's a sector that represents 4% of the GDP. So there's a huge imbalance there. And if you just look at it strictly with those two data points, there's going to be a tremendous amount of change to bring that into alignment so that the, 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 the contribution to GDP and the contribution to, to uh, climate forcing have to be brought into, into alignment. So it's going to have to change. And I think we all know it, and, uh, but the farm community is highly resistant to it. And I am of the farm community. I was raised on a farm. I'm a farmer here. Don't have cows. But we're going to have to change what we grow and how we consume and how we eat. And this is a fundamental thing. I also find it very empowering, by the way, because regardless of who your elected leaders are, and here you, you happen to have a good one who's on the, the right side of history, but, but at, a, at a national level, regardless of who the leaders are, you can take action as an individual. And I think one of the biggest things, and it goes back to that willpower and that ability to execute, one of the biggest things we're facing is that human civilization seems to be, I call it the missing middle. We've gone directly from denial. It's too far away in time. It's happening to other people, other places. doesn't matter to me. We've missed the middle, the battle, where you actually take on the challenge and do something and gone right to, we're all screwed. We're all screwed. We're all going to die. Let's just party. And we've sort of skipped the middle step. Or there's a tendency in human psychology to skip that middle step when really the battle's just getting started now. And I like challenges. Let's, let's fix this. There's a lot there. And I'll come back, I mean, I'll come back to farming in particular because you haven't minced your words on this and you haven't been afraid to put your head above the parapet in a new country. It's not uncomplicated 
you know, people from the other side of that argument will say, and you know this, that New Zealand farmers are some of the most efficient in the world. And there is an argument, as you know, that if they are to step out, step out of the sector, inefficiency could increase. Well, I would, first of all, I'd take exception to that. I've heard that argument, but methane uh, is one of the, the biggest things that we have to wrangle in this country. And the irony of it is that the concentrated feedlot operations in the U.S. and in, in Europe are actually more efficient for methane production than free-range grazing by a factor of two. So even though there's a lot of good science here in the way that, that dairy is done and the way that, that uh, beef is done, um, people are really sticking their heads in the, in the sand. Now, the thing is, I want to really emphasize how sympathetic I am to farmers. I, I, have, I have farms in Canada. I have, I have a farm here. The purpose of those farms is to figure out how to do it better, uh, to, to do less inputs, right? So far, farmers are really, all they want to do is just make some money off their land so they can keep their land, keep their family farm, keep their pride and you know, pride of place. It's for a lot of uh, Kiwi farmers, it's generational. Uh, they inherited the land and they believe in it. And right? that's a really important part of the national consciousness, isn't it? Sure. This idea of kaitiakitanga, ultra-long-term guardianship. Well, yes, but ultra-long-term guardianship requires understanding what you're doing now and its impact on future generations. And the, the, the jury is not out on this that you know, the rivers are being, being polluted, you have eutrophication caused by, by runoff of nitrate phosphate fertilizers. You know, it's an interesting fact that if you, if you ask any farmer what their primary um, crop is, they'll tell you, well, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, milk solids or whatever, but their, their crop in that case would be grass, right? They're grass farmers first to be dairy farmers. Um, but uh, or maybe it's maybe it's cash crops, maybe it's flax, maybe it's whatever. But the point is, what their real crop is, because they run about 51 to 55 percent of the nutrient top dressing that they put on runs out into the waterways, goes into the lakes and rivers, winds up in the ocean. What their primary crop is is algae. And so we need more efficient agronomy to hold on to that nutrient because that's where your margin is as a farmer. That's where your profitability is. If you're spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year, depending on the scale of your operation on, on nitrate and phosphate top dressing and half of it's running off, you need to be practicing organic methods to retain it and retain moisture and not have to do like in Canterbury, the big, they're going to be running out of water there and they've got these big center pivot systems and all that sort of thing. So I, what I wanted to do personally was actually get my hands dirty on in, 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 in farming and understand how these things work. And by the way, some of them don't work as well as they're advertised. And a lot of these organic processes don't work as well in certain areas that they work in other areas. So you've got you've to let the land tell you how it wants to be farmed, you know. But we also have to talk about what we eat and, and changing our consumption uh, which will then create market drivers on what farmers are growing. And I'll come back to that because, you know, that question of mom momentum around changing our diets is something that's very much of the moment. But I just want to go back to something you both touched on about will and about consensus. Mm -hmm. Something you said at that um, climate emergency declaration meeting, Aaron, you called it intergenerational theft to keep practicing business as usual. If we're not collectively prepared to make decisions that impact us in the short term uh, at the disproportionate expense of those who come after us, it's hard to call it anything other than intergenerational theft. That's what it is. So at least own it. That's what we're doing. Our short-termism is you know, robbing those who come after us because we're not prepared to make the sacrifices that we know. I mean, we know what needs to happen. I mean, we, don't, we don't need any more ideas. We just need political will. But pol political will is often, too often, effectively a, a, a product of public demand. 
right? Politicians make decisions for one of two reasons. One, because they think it's the right thing to do, or two, because they think they'll lose their job if they don't. And well, not, yes. not in that order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, right, call me, an, yeah, call me an optimist. But, and, and so if you can't win them on the first point, then you have to do it in the second. And, and that, was the, that was what I was trying to say earlier. It, was the, it took thousands of people on the streets, you know, the activation of people, the mobilisation of people, to make the people that I sit around the decision-making table with listen and take action to a degree that we haven't. And is it enough? No. Is it significant? Yes. And do we need more of that to push us further along the line? Yes. I mean, that's, that's how politics works, sadly. And is uh, the ability of politics to find a solution, a meaningful solution to this, hampered by the very nature of the political system, by, the elector- by, by electoral cycles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'd like to think, and we're having the same debate at a legislative level nationally around the Zero Carbon Act or whatever its formal uh, name became, you know, because that is an attempt to set a, an enduring legislative framework that is more immune uh, to political cycles, and that's difficult to establish, but I think is a noble goal, because, you know, politicians are very risk-averse people who think on very short time horizons, and, and we don't have that luxury anymore. Mm. A noble goal, but already being criticised in some quarters for representing too much of a compromise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, I mean is, is that legislation significant? Absolutely. Is it sufficient? Absolutely not. But that, and we need to celebrate both of those things because I think it's important for people who are involved in this movement who are pushing for you know, something that might resemble a safer climate future... You know, people, we need to celebrate the progress that we're making, but at the same time acknowledge that we need people uh, uh, pushing for more and, and, do, and to do more and to do it faster. But we need, we need both of those, because otherwise, you know, you do end up in that position where, of futility, well, what's the point? You know, and it's hard, for a, it's hard for a movement to sustain momentum if it can't celebrate victories along the way. Yeah, the, from a storyteller point of view, how important is it to frame this in such a way that hope is kept alive? Well, this is, this is the big dilemma. Because if you really put, you, you know, it's because we're still on the cusp of this denial problem, and it varies. It's, it, it's much more out in the open. It's much more of a public dialogue here than it is in the U.S., at least at, at political levels. And so in the U.S., I'd say it's important to to pull the fire alarm and start screaming because people just have their heads in the sand and there's so much confirmation bias in the way that they take in the news that they can actually write their own narratives. So storytelling has essentially got hijacked by the AI algorithms used by big data to tell you what you want to hear in a huge way. And I think, I don't know what it is, it's, I guess it's the natural spirit here, or the, the, natural, the national culture, but Kiwis just seem to be more skeptical and, and less likely to be duped by all that because it actually is an open dialogue and it is being politically debated. It's not in the U.S. Uh, you know, at, at all. But uh, you know, I think it's important to have hope, it's Im- but it's also important to understand the scope of the problem. So it's that fine balance. And, but I think less than you know, whether you're pessimistic or whether you're optimistic kind of doesn't really matter. The situation is what it is. What's important is the average person needs to have something to do. They need to be given a course of action. I think it's helplessness that is the greater you know, psychological force at work here. Anxiety, free-floating anxiety, which tends to be paralyzing. But you give somebody something to do. If there's a proximal emergency, let's call it a flood, you hand somebody a sandbag, say, go put that over there, you're doing good, that's all they need. That's all they need. And that's what we need. We need the things that we know we can do that are, that are going to make a difference and are, and are good. But again, it is that question, isn't it, when you're dealing with a problem on this magnitude of scale between personal action, household action, consumer action, business action, the things that we can do, and the need for a a multilateral approach for government action, national action. And looking looking at the targets for whether it's going zero carbon by 2030, whatever it is at, at a council level or a national level, 
we are asking, are, are, these, are these ambitious enough? Are these going to get us where we need to go? Well, some scientists would tell you no, but you've got to start somewhere. And the danger is that by doing a little bit, you've, you get to relax and pull the covers back over your head. Uh, and then it still comes up and bites you on the butt later, you know, because uh, you haven't done enough. But I think doing something, I think here in New Zealand, everybody should be proud that you're actually taking action and actually having this debate openly and actually declaring a crisis. Um, again, in stark contrast to the U.S., to a certain extent the U.K. and some other European countries, and obviously Brazil and so on, where it's all in this vast state of chaos and denial. Um, and, you know, they're the ones that need to take action. And I would say it's not only intergenerational theft, it's intercultural theft, because the people least responsible for climate forcing are the ones who will be hit the hardest. So if you have uh, developing nations that are highly susceptible to drought and haven't made, haven't burned, you know, a number of gigatons of, of coal or whatever, the, the, you know, China and the United States and, and, and Europe are the primary drivers. The United States is the single largest emitter historically, not, not presently, but historically, they've, they've emitted the most carbon into the atmosphere. It's not coincidental that they are the ones who are the most in denial, have most been hijacked by special interests, and have rem removed themselves from the Paris Accords because they're the most guilty. And guilty people, you know, they, they're the ones that are most likely to be in denial because people elsewhere in the world are being displaced from their land, dis being displaced from their shores. Their, their Pacific nations are going underwater. As a result, now that can be traced back scientifically to actions that were taken un unknowingly, unknowingly, um, by the major, major emitters. So to admit it now is psychologically difficult, and it also might even be, might open a way to some discussion of reparations or something to that extent. And now you're getting into a lot of com complex factors. So it's like, why can't they just wake up and smell the coffee? Well, it's active, it, it's active disinformation and actively abetted denial. It's not just a simple knee-jerk psychological response. And listening to you say that provides a context, doesn't it, for the words of someone like Greta Thunberg, mm. who will stand up at Davos in front of the yeah, amassed absolutely. leaders of the world and say, I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. The yeah. house is on I fire. Agree. I don't know what both of you think about that sort of rhetoric. I mean, she's our Martin Luther King. You know, he, he had something to say in the, in the 60s about racial equality. And he, he had to be a black person to say it. She's a child. It has to be a child that says it because she's speaking for the future. And so she was the necessary voice and the necessary catalyst at the right time. And, of course, it's been taken up because it's the right thing. Nobody creates a movement. They can only catalyze it into, you know, into a, a broader, broader thing. And you felt the political pressure from that and, and responded to it. I'm, I'm not a scientist or a physicist. I mean, I don't come to the environmental movement uh, from an ecological point of view. I, I come from a social justice background, and it became very obvious to me uh, a few years back that the single biggest social justice issue we face is climate change, because whether it's locally, nationally, or internationally, the people who are least, who have the least capacity to absorb what's going on are, you, generally speaking, the people who have had the least hand in causing the problem. There's a tension in how much we want to rely on or a risk that we rely too heavily on, on action at an individual level or at a household level. And people should be encouraged and should be supported into making those decisions. But we have to acknowledge, again, from a, from that, from a social justice lens, that often those options are things that you know, I can take or you can take, but they come from a place of privilege because not everyone can afford to go and buy an electric car. You know, the environmental movement tends towards piety, and I think we needlessly shame people for, for making the wrong choices or doing the wrong thing far too often. I think that's, that's counterproductive and because if we, make this, if we make climate action a purity test, then you know, I'm just a, a, a Green Party mayor who owns a petrol car and you're just a globe-trotting filmmaker who says the solution oh. is don't eat cheese. We're, so, we're so dismissible, <laughs> you know. But the thing that you brought up that's critical is the true cost. 
What's the true cost of a, a gallon of gasoline? What's the true cost of that of that cheese or that or that steak? Because if you really were to apply to it taxation that represented the downstream mitigation costs of climate change, the building of the seawalls, the displacing of the huge immigrant populations, the, the, the farmers' relief for droughts that are devastating and, and, and wipe them out and all of that sort of thing. If you total it up, it's much more expensive to fix than to prevent. But it's because we're not being accounted to properly. We buy, we buy the gas for a tenth of its true cost. We buy the meat for a tenth of its true cost. And so this is where, this is where government and policy and, and social consensus has to come in, where people, the, the things need to cost what they really cost to that next generation. Um, and until we have that, until we have a carbon tax, essentially some kind of carbon trading or carbon taxation scheme that, that puts everything in a true market-driven level playing field, we don't have that now. It's because the special interests that are making money off the old way to make money as opposed to the new way um, are still driving things. And yet what is the likelihood of the implementation of those sorts of levers that you're talking about, given, you know, that these may end up being political decisions, you know, given what we've just talked about, the electoral cycles and, and the nature, you know, politicians want to get re-elected. That is not a popular platform. <laughs> What's the likelihood, based on what I've seen? Zero. But based on what is possible with rapid change, when you see a movement that began within the last few months, and we've seen it sweeping around the world, you know, humans are capable of change. It's what we do best. It's why we walked upright, you know, so that we could carry stuff and go over the hill to where it was a little warmer or a little wetter or whatever it was. We're migrant species, you know, we've migrated all over this planet and we've adapted to every possible biome on the planet from the deep Arctic to the, to the tropics, high mountain, you know, genetically adapted, socially adapted. It's what we do. So we can adapt to a future of our own creation. Uh, but we have to know what's happening and what's required to, to do that adaptation. Um, you know, one of the, and this goes back to my empowerment, my individual empowerment, uh, and it goes to adaptation. Um, you know, my, my position on, on not eating animals is not based on ethics. It's based on env uh, the environmental impact of it. And I would submit that even if it was less healthy to not eat animals and to just eat plants, we're going to have to do it anyway. But the beauty of it is that it's not. It's the most healthy way to live, and it's the best way to keep the planet healthy. But people don't want to hear it. And you talk about piety. There's nobody more pious than a vegan. That's true story. I call but them we're not saying born, vegan. Born again vegans. You know? <laughs> we're not saying vegan anymore, though, are we? We're saying plant-based. No, no, plant it's back. It's you back. can't say vegan. No, no, no. You can say vegan now. You can say vegan. <laughs> for, for a while, for a while, you couldn't say it yeah. because it puts you in a category with with uh, you know uh, you know the kind of pita animal lovers, and the, there was always a bit of piety around that. And, and you know, God bless them. I I agree with them, but I think. You know that it's back. It's okay. You can say you can say vegan now because you know whole food plant based is too many letters and <laughs> the little V on the menu in the restaurant is just so much easier. You know, but you know, I mean, the thing is that you know my favorite my favorite vegan joke. You know, how many vegans does it take to screw in a light bulb? Doesn't matter. We're better than you. <laughs> you know, it just sum, sums it up. So when my wife and I, you know, changed for environmental reasons almost eight years ago. We were born again. We just had to tell everybody the good news, and we became obnoxious. <laughs> it you must know. have been fun at parties. <laughs> it was no fun to be our friend for about two years. Uh, but you know, but once you know that, you realize you have to you have to sneak up on it from you know a little more circumspectly because you're 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 really challenging people in a place where they, they've grown up that way. It's what we know. It's what our culture has represented to us. But it's wrong. But people are very, they're not very good about being wrong. It reminds me of my favorite vegan joke. Can I tell it? Yeah, absolutely. How do you tell if someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> you see? It's exactly, yeah, yeah, don't worry. 
But it wasn't that long ago that greeny was a punchline as well, Aaron, and you're sort of at the, at the coalface of that evolution. Tell us about getting elected. You know, was it, was it a surprise How long to you? you? <laughs> uh, this year, you mean? Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, but I think if it was ever going to happen, the best chance of it happening was this year. Um, partly for local um, political reasons that aren't particularly interesting, and you know we had an incumbent mayor standing down and, and all the rest of it, but partly because I think the movement uh, that we're seeing, the, the popular movement that we're seeing around uh, climate action in particular, has meant that this, this is a mainstream issue. I mean, I, I stood uh, as a mayoral candidate in 2016 for the sole purpose of turning up at every public meeting and every forum and talking about climate change because I knew that nobody else would. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and this year, only three years later, and this has really shifted probably in the last 12 months, everyone is talking about it. And so, you know, then it becomes a conversation around who do you trust to get something done and and, and what are people's track records. But that has shifted hugely in terms of... Like, it's a mainstream political issue, to, to your point. It's not a fringe issue, talking about climate change and climate action and environmentalism, and, and I'm, I'm super conscious that climate change isn't the only environmental issue that we're facing, but it is the one that, as a territorial authority, we have the most uh, control over, you know, we're also in an ecological crisis and a biodiversity crisis, and all of those things need, um, need equal attention, and they lose a lot of bandwidth to climate change as the, as the key issue. But That's a really important point, isn't it, that question of bandwidth. How much can we absorb, cope with, deal with. And, and those questions around, I mean, you've talked, you just addressed this, Jim, the question of what we eat. It hits us where we live, doesn't yeah. it? Well, Aaron was just going through the list of, you know, biodiversity loss and, you know, uh, if you, there's an interesting thing. My, my, my wife prepared this for a book that, that she wrote, and it was a Venn diagram, and she took all the major ecological crises of the world from uh, biodiversity, deforestation, ocean uh, dead zones, uh, waterway pollution, and so on. You just you go around, and where they all overlap is at animal agriculture. Agriculture in general, but mostly animal agriculture. And it turns out to be a kind of a magic wand solution to just stop eating animals. Um, if we, if, if, if the whole, and it gets get back to a social justice issue, if the, if the developing world comes up to the consumption levels of New Zealand and the United States, which are very similar uh, when it comes to um, animal ag, uh, we would need somewhere on the order of four to six planet Earths to support our current population eventually. And eventually is not that long. If we all ate like somebody in India right now, uh, you know, a poor person in India who lives a mostly, uh, eats mostly plants, mostly lentils, um, then we could support a population on this planet of 15 billion people. So there's a huge kind of social injustice factor. It's like we can live this way, but you can't, and you never can. Or we have to change a meat in the middle someplace so that everyone you know, can, can have a reasonable mm. lifestyle. But the thing that occurs to me about what you're saying is you look at um, that sort of cultural, historical, emotional attachment to meat in cultures outside of New Zealand. I mean, you have emergent middle classes in mm-hmm. Indonesia and in, in massive economies who do have that connection to meat eating. Surely it's a question of self-determination for them too, whether they want to change. Well, it's, a, it's considered a sign of affluence in China to be able to afford meat. So, that, so that as you enter the middle class there and you're making more money, you immediately start eating more, especially pork, but every, every type. And so it's really taking the world directly the, the wrong direction. It, it comes down ultimately, in my mind, to a land use issue. The use of land can be anywhere from 10 to 40 times more efficient in feeding people if they eat plants versus that which eats plants. Because, you know, it's, it's, it, every time you go up a trophic level, you lose efficiency. 
So if you eat if you eat something that eats something that eats something, you you you're you're going up one one trophic level. In the ocean, when you have a when you have tuna, you're eating right at the top of the of the of the food chain. That's up about four four or five trophic levels from the from the primary producers, which are algae. So the closer you get to the soil and you take your food directly out of the out of the ground, so to speak, the more efficient you become. And you can deal with all of the, the details of chickens versus pork versus cattle versus dairy, you know, meat cattle, but it's ultimately an efficiency thing. How do we get the most efficiency out of the land that we utilize for agriculture and therefore stop taking more land from forests, from rainforests in Brazil and so on, to feed that addiction, essentially. But it's worth making the point, too, isn't it, that large-scale industrial farming, whether it's maize or soy or whatever the, the vegetable crop is, that still has an impact. It's having a huge impact, and that's being done incorrectly as well. Industrial farming is done with you know, uh, GMO um, uh, plants that are, that are carefully engineered to, to work with Roundup pesticides and herbicides and things like that. And so that's doing incredible harm to the earth and loss of topsoil and, and so on. And these are all d degrading processes that have to do with the amount of agriculture that we're doing. But we could cut the total amount of agriculture by two thirds, four fifths, pick your number, by not growing plants. Most soy is not consumed by us, it's consumed by cattle. You know, most corn is, you see what I mean? We're not, we're not using it efficiently. So, it's, so ultimately, it, it all tracks back to a land use issue. And that relates to carbon and carbon emissions and methane and all, all of those things. Well, it's a finite resource, isn't it? It's all finite. It's an extractive industry. You know, so you look at the mining industry and the oil industry, those are extractive industries. Farming is an extractive industry. We're taking the nutrient out of the soil and then we have to put it back. And in that case, in this country, it means you know, shipping potash from Canada, among other things. You, know. you mentioned your wife's book and, and one of the things I like about your wife's book is it's about changing one meal. Susie's book, um, my wife Susie wrote, she wrote a book called OMD, One Meal a Day for the Planet. And it came out of her being an educator and founding her own school. And it was a green school. It's a, it's a green school. It's a very green curriculum. And um, she came to me one day after we had gone vegan primarily for environmental reasons and said, what? you know, we're, we're teaching the kids about, about you know, uh, sustainability and, and individual responsibility but they're eating burgers and pizza at, at lunch. She said, we have to, we have to, we have to go plant-based. We'll, we'll, we'll teach the kids to grow their own food, which they did. They put in 170 raised beds and the kids grow their own food and eat it. And the cafeteria at the school was recently voted the greenest restaurant in the world. It beat out all the farm to table, seed to table, high, high you know, end restaurants in Chicago and New York and everything, I beat them all out because it's a solar-powered school. They grow their own food. It was all built from, rent, from recycled materials, the buildings, and they eat only plants. Um, so, uh, you know, she, she proved her point, but half the parents left because, and a whole bunch came in from other states even to be, to be a part of it, so, the, so it all worked out. But what she found was that in educating the parents so that they felt safe and comfortable about it, she said, guys, it's just one meal a day. You can have a double cheeseburger for breakfast if you want, but when you're here, you have to walk the walk because it, ha it has to be consistent with what's being taught. And so from that, she realized that's the, the, the best way to, to ask people to make a change is in small steps to something that's graspable, something that they can do, that they can act on immediately, not asking them to suddenly convert to a different religion, you know. And it's graspable. And then once you're doing it and you're starting to realize, hey, that tastes pretty good, or hey, I like this recipe, or you start to, it just starts to become easier and easier, and then you can build from there. Mm. And that's empowering, isn't it, as opposed to that sense of shame that can come with the idea that everything I'm doing is wrong. That's yeah. not an empowering. Yeah, exactly, because that's when you shut off. That's when denial clamps down. It's like mm -hmm. somebody else will solve this, not my problem. Mm. They, I see that um, climate change has been put on school curricula in Italy. I think it's being taught here. I mean, I've spoken to teachers who teach it. I don't know whether, it's, um, whether it has to be taught, whether it's mandatory. How much of a difference do you think that makes? Young people get it, 
and they can't understand why people who are supposed to be their leaders or their representatives or their authority figures haven't done anything about it. So I don't think we have to worry about them. It's their parents you need to worry about. And, and I think that was, you know, we saw things with Generation Zero. They ran a campaign around the Zero Carbon Act called Elbow Your Elders, uh, which was about getting young people to ring up their grandparents and talk to them about, and you know, asking them to make submissions on legislation because, you know, that's how we're going to get the, you know, the, the kind of consensus, if you like, of of public demand to get the to get the political will to to do what needs to be done. But uh, it's absolutely important that it gets taught in schools. I mean. We're kind of lucky in that it hasn't yet touched wood become a culture war issue here, but we've got a general addiction around the corner, and we'll see. It will. <laughs> It'll I, be like teaching evolution in, yeah, the, yeah. in the U.S., te- yeah. trying to teach evolution in Kansas. You know, it was, a big, it was a big deal, and it's still done very circumspectly, and there has to be equal time for creationism in certain states in the United States, which is basically you might as well have equal time for the Flat Earth Society while you're at it. You know, and it's this false equivalency. You know, you've got 11,000 scientists over here that say we're in, a, in an emergency. You've got three scientists over here. Two of them are paid by the oil companies, and one's just a stubborn old guy. You know, but that guy will get on the news with equal time with one of the 11,000. And then everybody thinks, well, it's still an open question. But it's a false equivalency that's propagated by the media. And I have to say, the Kyoto, the, the, Kyoto the, the RNZ magazine, did exactly that. Here's a guy speaking for, here's a guy speaking against, climate denier. Equal, equal time on the page. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. False equivalency. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna write to the, write the magazine. Because otherwise, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, major media outlets here have weathered criticism earlier in the year for refusing to engage in, with with denial as as part of that conversation just on that question I'm going to open it up for questions in a second but just on that question of collective responsibility I listened to a political commentator last weekend at an event in Wellington a well-known commentator um, say nobody cares nobody cares that New Zealand passed a zero carbon bill it's it's a compromise it's a tiny country at the bottom of the world it doesn't matter I think that's, that's, a, that's a cop-out answer. Yep. I think if you add up all of the countries that have the same roughly profile of us, you get to about 25% of the global problem, and that's significant. And so for us to opt out, I mean, so not only is it significant that we do something, we also have a moral obligation uh, to be doing things, you know, particularly with our, with, you know, our Pacific friends and neighbours are literally drowning as a result of inaction and inertia. And so I think for that reason alone, uh, we need to be more ambitious um, than, than the framework currently is, um, but also to say that it makes no difference, I think is incredibly unhelpful and, and untrue because you get a quarter of the world's uh, carbon footprint opting out because they consider themselves as being too small to matter, then we're never going to get to where we need to get to. I think the world does pay attention to New Zealand disproportionate to its population and its GDP. I mean, you know, you've got from Edmund, Edmund Hillary to the, to the all blacks to the, you know, the, the, the uh, racing boats. There's, I think people look, look to New Zealand as both a, a forward-thinking green nation and a, a, a nation of, of independent and rational people. I certainly think of this as one of the the least insane places on an otherwise pretty <laughs> delusional planet. These are new strip line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's just uh, kind of less delusional here. And I think that that somebody that stands up, it's Greta Thunberg is from Sweden, you know, 14-year-old from Sweden. She stood up and challenged the world. New Zealand can do that. You know, we're all in this together. That's the, the important thing that, that, you know, you talk about the multilateral. What we're not great at is inter- intergovernmental cooperation, and it's getting worse. People are building walls and slamming borders and, and saying, you know, it's us over them or us versus them at a time when we need more compassion, more empathy, fewer walls, fewer divisions, and more unity of purpose as a species. Uh, so we've got to work against that, and I think I think New Zealand is aptly poised to be a rational voice on a global stage. Okay, we have a few minutes for questions, and we have a roving microphone. 
Tipping point. Have we passed it, or are we, are, are we going to get there yet? I'm not an expert on that, but from what I read, and I try to stay up on the science journals and so on, the answer is yes and no. It's a question of how heroic we're willing to be in our measures. You know, if somebody comes into the emergency room with a life-threatening injury and they're exsanguinating, and the doctor's, you know, down the hall on his coffee break, are you past the tipping point? Yeah, a guy's going to die. But if you've got a crack team that comes in and starts to work right away, then no. So it's really a question of how we respond. So people are always talking about, the, about this tipping point, but it's a moving target. You know, if we take the threat, the existential threat seriously, and people need to understand, it's like when, you know, they talk about human extinction, what they're really talking about is an end process of a highly chaotic downgrading of human civilization that'll take place in our children's lifetime and in their children's lifetime if we don't wrangle this. And, it, and we're seeing the seeds of it right now. You know, the Syrians, refugees flooding into Europe that destabilized the entrenched governments there and caused this populist backlash in the election of people in Italy and, and various other European uh, nations and Brexit and all that can all be traced back to this influx of people coming out of, out of Syria a few years ago from the Syrian civil war. What caused the Syrian civil war? Climate change. They had an unprecedented drought that, that was greater than anything they'd ever had in Syrian history, and a million farmers wound up in the city clamoring for the government to do something about it, and the government reacted by basically you know, tear-gassing them and suppressing them and arresting them and everything else, and then there was an uprising, and it all destabilized. Those were climate refugees. The Guatemalans that were marching north toward the American border to challenge the, the border policy that Trump made a national issue out of they were climate refugees. Their farms were failing because of massive changes in the rainfall patterns that had wiped out farms that had been farmed for eight to ten generations in Guatemala. Stable, stable farming communities had suddenly collapsed. So we're seeing it already. So just extrapolate that, not by a factor of ten, but maybe by a factor of a hundred, because that's what's going to happen. So it's just going to be... It's going to be Walls. It's going to be division. It's going to be warfare. That's how this thing plays out. It's not about things just getting a little too hot for comfort. It's not about having to sell your beach house at a loss. It's a cascade effect. It's a domino failure. And I don't think people really grasp what it's going to look like, but all they have to do is look at the things that have happened in the last few years that have transformed geopolitics. It's already happening. And you're already seeing it here, aren't you, Aaron, with vulnerable communities in this region? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you join me in thanking our guests? <laughs>